You're listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have an exceptional interview with the fabulous Tim Nash, uh, who's going to be joining us in the middle of the program and as well a bunch of other news headlines. Please enjoy the show. Quick reminder, as usual, if you can, you're willing and you're able to support us. We do really appreciate it, and it does help us get out our content uh, as well to further uh, uh, venues as well, get the word out about what we do. Also improve the quality of the show. We're in desperate need of some equipment right now, so it's a great time to become a member. Uh, if you can do that, you can do it at patron.com, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, of course, as usual, Darren Kaster, and I'm sitting in a full, full studio today. Uh, we're going to be talking about some news, but I actually have a guest as well today, uh, Tim Nash. Any long-term listeners of the program will know Tim Nash. Tim is joining us today uh, remotely, in a sense. We had to do a pre-record because he's very busy right now. Uh, but it's a very interesting conversation uh, about uh, a Robin Hood tax. So we're talking about taxes a little bit today, but not all economically dominated. We have, of course, the usual news roundup uh, with our news team here, and uh, also uh, missing the uh, uh, also very busy M.A. Ma is joining us as well, <laughs> uh, as uh, as well. and then, of course, uh, Deirdre is Deirdre Lewinata. Oh, my God. Can you just jump in and correct me again? Uh, Deirdre Lewinata. Right. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to okay. tattoo the phonetic spelling of your last name on that room. <laughs> Thank you, Deirdre. I apologize. Uh, However, uh, Stefan is going to actually play lead today because I am once again teching this week intentionally. Uh, So, Stefan, please take it away with our news roundup. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Darren. Uh, So, for those of you who are paying... any attention to 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 American politics? Uh, know that the R, the Republican National Convention, the RNC, finished up yesterday uh, with a fascinating, terrifying speech uh, by one. Uh, uh, I, I just you know one orange to paid man. Uh, the, the Donald Donald J. Trump. The, the best, if I can just really quickly, the best that I've heard is uh, that Donald Trump looks like a man wearing a Donald Trump mask. Ooh, that, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Except I think, honestly, if you bought if you bought that mask, uh, it would, you'd probably return it because it didn't look lifelike enough. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we're actually going to use that. We're not going to actually cover that too much uh, because, surprise, the Republicans don't like climate change. Uh, that's or, or actually like climate change. Don't like trying to stop it. Uh, that's the entirety of the. I don't know if climate change was ever mentioned actually in the entire RNC. There were a couple mentions of uh, of how we were going to unlock coal again and, and 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 get coal miners back to work, despite the fact that they were you know put out of work because of natural gas and not because of climate change regulations. But whatever, that's cool. They can they can say all the things they want. Uh, but we're actually going to mo- use this actually as a way to as a foil to move on to a different conversation which we were going to have last week. We've moved to this week, uh, which is really all about. Uh, 
uh, climate denialism and, and the state of denialism within, uh, within Canada and then also with the states. Or within, and it was starting with the states and then moved to Canada, actually. Uh, so it begins with this, this, this conservative group, actually a couple of conservative groups that are coming out actually to push back against the Republican Party's climate denialism. Uh, specifically, one called Partnership for Responsible Growth uh, has launched a TV advertisement campaign aimed squarely at conservatives, uh, trying to remind them that the Republicans can lead on climate. There, is, there does exist a, 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 a way that, that conservatives can be trying to stop climate change. That is a real thing, everyone. Uh, we promise. Um, and and one of this and this is actually attacked directly on conservatives uh, and this it, it ties into a larger movement actually within the Republican uh, organization to actually get these things to happen. Uh, specifically, there's one as an organization that I've referenced a couple times called Republic En uh, that I follow on Twitter, which I find fascinating because they're sort of all they, they all come actually out of Bob Inglis. It's Bob Inglis's organization, who was the senator uh, who was a Republican and, and committed the thought crime of admitting that climate change exists, uh, and therefore was challenged by a Tea Partier and then lost. Uh, and so he went out to try to create this movement to, to move things over. Uh, but uh, but what, what this also comes out of actually a whole bunch uh, about a week ago. So again, we were going we to have this last week. I had to get pushed a little bit. Uh, but a week ago, there was one on climate. There was a whole host of uh, of pieces on this climate change denial funding um, from senators. So senators of the United States launched a resolution uh, to attack what they were calling the hashtag Web of Denial, uh, which is not the greatest hashtag, but we'll let them go with it. Uh, they just learned Snapchat existed about three weeks ago when they did a sit-in. So they're just they're, they're only catching up on. On all these things now, and for new li- and for new listeners, it's appropriate context to know that Stefan is a hashtag snob. That's true. I am. Uh, I hate most of them, especially Sunday Funday. I'm against that <laughs> from the outset. Um, you're allowed to be a snob because you're you're quite good at them yourself. So. <laughs> I'll take permission it. granted. Yes, although you know, no one likes mine, so I'm one of those snobs that is not in touch with anyone <laughs> uh, except myself. Uh, but um, so th- there's a whole interesting thing about this. so what senators did they came together and actually called out a, a whole group uh, of, of organizations, and they shouldn't really be surprised for anyone who's following this sort of thing. It's the Koch brothers, it's Exxon, um, who are currently being investigated for knowing about climate change. Obviously, Peabody Coal, which is you know we've already mentioned now, I think three or four weeks in a row for their climate denial work. Uh, and then there are sort of more umbrella organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and the Heartland Institute, which are all famous within these climate denial movements. Uh, and senators sort of sat in and did this whole thing to try to get to bring attention to this. Uh, and so they're still working on it. Uh, again, this is just really senators being like, hey, everyone, look at all this money that is going these places. Uh, there's some great breakdowns on, on the news rundown from last week's show, which one means to go check out. Uh, but this is more of like an information session to know that exists. Um, and 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 the, the, the just to get, quickly harp on Exxon uh, Exxon New for a half second before we go to some more, more Canadian context uh, is that it's now uh, Exxon is now suing a Massachusetts Attorney Governor uh, Maura Healy. Uh, which is like, which is pretty much blatantly just a oh, an intimidation tactic against those who, who goes who are looking into the Exxon News scandal. That's all it is. Uh, they're trying to intimidate people. It's it's the scan the these the lawsuit has no meaning beyond more of a slap, uh, which is you know a, a term for basically trying to use do you like, do you, do strategic they, lawsuit against public participation. Bam! Thanks, Darren. Uh, exactly. Just trying to basically trying to scare people down. Uh, from this is specifically actually for attorney generals, but it's the same idea. Uh, and then 
so, and, and, and like, but this is like, what's crazy about this is that in, in the, the Exxon News scandal is so hard and fast and closed, uh, so obvious that it comes, there's even one document that includes the words, uh, this is an Exxon internal document sent from like to the, to, uh, tubule in Exxon from Exxon saying, there's no doubt that increases in fossil fuel usage and decreases in forest cover are aggravating the potential problem of increased CO2 in the atmosphere. That is internal documents in Exxon from 1980. They now have spent 35 years since just trying to claim that this doesn't happen. And how many hundreds of millions of dollars? Exactly. Uh, so by all means, go on our website, check out on greenmajority.ca, and check out more of the links about that. Uh, shifting over to a Canadian focus. Oh, actually, so yes. just what, one, unpress- one unplanned quick thing about that. Really important. Uh, I'll get it out really quick here. Is that you mentioned both uh, Trump and the Koch brothers. So something yeah. really interesting happened yesterday uh, at the RNC. Well, some news broke during the, the last day of the RNC. Uh, I, I don't recall if it was a leak or an official story. So like if this is like hearsay behind the scenes hearsay or if this is like official. Uh, but there are reports that the the Koch brothers who have raised $900 million, both of their own money and through other partners for their uh, their network of nefarious schemes, uh, are so against Trump. And this has not been news. They've been they've been pretty anti-Trump since the beginning, and they've stayed to this day anti-Trump, uh, have are so anti-Trump that they are now threatening that anyone who spoke at the RNC is going to be cut off. They're threatening to fund all of their competitors. So wow. A, there's a, there is a legitimate and still very active civil war in the Republican Party right now. And B, the other side of that was that they were saying that they're considering spending that $900 million, not just keeping it, but spending it on Hillary Clinton. Wow. So that's really, really important, folks, because that really highlights to you two things. One, Donald Trump is not uh, – this isn't some secret backroom nefarious deal, and really they're all on the same team, and it's just a big scam. The, the right wing is really in a massive civil war right now. And the, and the other thing of that was that should tell you a couple of things about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> uh, we won't spend the whole show on it. I just thought that was really important to, to stick on that before we move in. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that reminds me that the one person they probably will keep funding is Ted Cruz, given that he was booed off stage for refusing to endorse Trump uh, on Wednesday, uh, which if you like watching both Ted Cruz get booed and someone stick it to Donald Trump as one thing, you get to watch it in one thing. So that's fun. Um, but moving on to the Canadian context. Uh, there is. We actually we had a note from a, from a, from a, from a listener of the show about how the, even the, the CBC actually has been has at, on, in January uh, played a show called The Contrarians, which actually featured a couple different um, ac- a couple different climate deniers at this point. Um, and and so this is not a this is not a Canadian this is not a American thing. This is a, this is a whole world thing. This is this idea that still exists is everywhere and it's still permeating our media despite the fact that you know it's it is science. Uh, but then, and then also, there's also a thing about Brad Wall. And Brad Wall is, I think, Emma, you're on this one. Yeah, I just want to say that I almost feel on some level that we need to stop labeling people like Brad Wall or Donald Trump or Ted Cruz as climate deniers because it almost gives them the benefit of being ignorant. Mm. When I think what we're saying is that a lot of these people um, that are in positions of power who refuse to engage with climate science are not ignorant at all. They know full well uh, the implications of the climate science. They just do not want to engage with them. It's inconvenient for them. It doesn't support their political objective. So I almost don't want to 
you know, extend that benefit to to Bradwall. So Bradwall has been on our sh- has been mentioned on our show on a ongoing basis. Um, last time I think he came up was that he had made a statement that was very inflammatory, basically suggesting that uh, climate change and all the hoopla around it was not merited. Um, and he got in a lot of hot water for that. So, well, he's come, he, at least we, he's consistent because he's <laughs> come out again um, against the notion of having a price on carbon in Canada. And he's, he's come out, though, with a new angle of saying that should the federal government impose some sort of carbon price or carbon tax in this case, that he would explore a constitutional challenge. And the basis for this that he's investigating is the principle that governments cannot uh, tax other governments. So he's basically saying that, you know, any attempt by the federal government to impose a tax on, say, like a crown corporation like Sask Power or Sask Energy um, would be a basis for such a challenge. And he acknowledges that this doesn't really apply to the private sector, which, you know, he's already pointing out a fault in his own argument, essentially. <laughs> um, but he he's basically saying that Saskatchewan does not need to take on carbon pricing because they already have a de facto basis for doing this and that they, quote unquote, sell uh, pollution for for carbon capture and se- sequestration. So, I think my my one of my many issues with him is I don't actually believe that he has an alternative that he wants to use to get to the same basis. He's this is coming from the same person who has called coal a transition fu- fuel. <laughs> so I find I I firmly believe that he actually just does not want to reduce pollution and does not want to reduce emissions. What do you guys think about his argument of saying that that methods like carbon capture are a valid basis for arriving at the same uh, emissions reductions? I, I have a really fast analysis, and I and I I could be wrong, but I don't think this is this is generally accepted as a theory. So I may be going out of a limb here. I think he's angling for conservative leadership. Mm. I think he, I think he's going to try. I think he's redis, uh, he's noticing that he's sort of the only last bastion of sort of sitting powerful conservatives mm. in this country, and I think he's I think he's looking to his political future. Frankly, that uh, makes sense to some extent, but I think the, the I think the Ma your point actually about uh, really just about this longer question uh, of what are there other solutions uh, is really this thing that I think differentiates uh, the, you know, what I would consider serious people and not serious people. You know, like the RN, the Republican, I spent, I watched a unreasonable amount of the Republican National Convention because I have, I guess I hate myself, I guess. <laughs> uh, and what's striking is the complete lack of solutions for any of the problems they're identifying. Uh, they don't even try. Uh, and, 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 you know, with, 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 with climate change, the only way they even pretend they have a response to it is saying, la, 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 I don't hear you. Um, and and so at least Brad Wall coming out and saying, well, we can do this by such question, is at least he's admitting there might be a problem and has a solution. It's an ineffectual solution, uh, given that what percentage of, of, of like, like it comes back to this idea of, like, how do you sequester every single car that you're driving? How do you, like, the, the, the amount of pollution that comes out or amount of greenhouse gas that comes out of uh, things in other different ways uh, is, is so obvious. Uh, and, and so impossible to solve with this one strategy that it's it's sort of like being like how like you know you come up to someone who's you know who's playing hockey or something and you're like well how are you going to solve your goalie problem you're like well we're going we're going to we're going to get some more fans in the seats and that's going to be great 
He's like, that's that doesn't do anything. Well, I don't I, want, what? I think the couple of quotes that are a couple of you know, paraphrase quotes that have come up from him already is enough to indict him as being full of it. I mean, if if climate change isn't real, why do we need a transition fuel? I mean, he's right. basically already <laughs> admitted that he's full of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing I I think is important to point out though is that he's not the only premier that has come out against this concept of a national carbon tax. So there have been other premiers, like for example, Yukon Premier Daryl Pazlowski. You know, and and the view of some of the other premiers is that this is a made in the South tax. So I think we need to acknowledge that not all provinces and territories are in the same situation. We have remote territories um, where, you know, life is a lot harder and the costs are a lot higher. So one could argue that different arrangements, these targets need to be met, but different arrangements need to happen. And perhaps um, even if there is a national price on carbon, which sets a floor, for example, the administrative systems from could vary possibly from province provinces to territories, and we might want to look at policy mechanisms that offset disproportionate costs, for example, to remote communities or provide extra support. But I guess my argument would be that's not a good enough reason to say, no, we can't have a national carbon price. It's just to say that there need to be policies and programs that recognize different levels of equity in terms of how it gets implemented. Well, yeah, when we had uh, Barbara Gachalova here from uh, representing the uh, Center for Environmental Law Association? Maybe the center is wrong there. Canadian, Canadian Environmental Law Association. Uh, she you know, brought up this, ex- this exact point. The problem inherently with carbon tax and car- or carbon pricing is that it can be a regressive tax in that it can disproportionately hurt the, the, the poorest of people. So it has to be coupled with, with, these, uh, with some sort of alternatives to help those people manage these, these costs. Uh, because yeah, you can't just blanketly be like charge a percentage ton and expect everyone to be the same because it's obviously going to be biased in the wrong direction. Uh, in regards to the premiers, I think it's fascinating that we're back to this conversation of a, of a Canada-wide carbon tax because when you, you look at the history of things, of trying to get Canada-wide things passed, um, the premiers always rejected. Even, pre- even, even premiers who are on board with the idea, convincing them to give up some of their power, uh, which is basically what these things end up being, is a very, very controversial opinion, regardless of whether or not uh, you you agree with the idea? You know, you see BC, Ontario, Quebec probably all are going to fight in some ways to to, to prevent this. Uh, probably on the basis that they have their own thing already. Uh, but at the same time, because of the fact that they don't want to give up that kind of power. Yeah, and I th- I think my my final comment on on that will be um, that I think that's that's probably the biggest failure of liberal politics in this country. And I and I don't mean liberal politics as in the liberal party. I mean sort of left wing politics is that, or at least as far as it is it manifests through our parties in Canada is that, you know, I, I believe that many of the ideas, obviously not across the board, but I believe that many of the ideas of the quote unquote left wing politics are correct. I believe they're correct, not just be for ideological reasons. I think I can prove it. But the there there seems to be this this obvious way to so if you're if you're dealing with a factual situation so not a, not a not a position of ideology but something like does climate change exist so do we need a way to deal with it these types of like de- definitive things with mathematical calculatable answers um, that if it was like okay well if you were right um, if you were right and I believe they are but if you if you were right normally what you would do is say, okay, well, we need to make sure this happens. What are the roadblocks and how do we eliminate those roadblocks? So in this case, something that a liberal government, and again, I mean a left-wing, not the Liberal Party of Canada, um, would say is, okay, 
the reason why there's some resistance in some provinces, you know, it's claimed to be because they doubt the science, but reality is just that they're trying to look out for their province and, and you know, in a way that I disagree with, but that's what they're doing. They're trying to look out for their populace in a way that they think best suits them politically and their, and their populace. So the best way to undercut that and make sure that you get the things that you want is to admit that, yes, yeah, some of these policies are going to potentially negatively impact those provinces and do something to offset it. And what you do is you steal the thunder of all of their arguments of, hey, if we vote for liberals or, hey, if we pursue these climate change policies, you're going to get screwed. Well, OK, well, so come up with a plan so that they don't. And we've talked about this before about, you know, don't just impose a carbon tax. Also, you know, put a creative fund for the world's lar- or the Canada's largest ever uh, job retraining program to get these all these oil uh, uh, drilling jobs easily, easily transitioned into geothermal jobs. And that's where not just this liberal party, although they're certainly indictable on this, but left-wing politics in general, it seems to have this, the same mentality as the right-wing parties of as soon as we're in power, you know, screw the other guys and we're going to look out for our priorities. Um, and that's not how you stay in power. And that's not how you get your policies. In fact, that's how you play tit for tat uh, politics. That's not how you actually solve problems. And, and I think that's the biggest indictment of the, not only this party, but of sort of generally, as I said, sort of quote unquote left wing politics. I'd was, say it's more like centrist politics. Well, frankly. <laughs> well, no, but as far as like, you know, being the, the, the types of things of the left, like we should deal with climate change and people should have mm-hmm. rights and we should more respect indigenous values. Like, OK, well, if those are the, your priorities, then you have to do something to address the concerns of your detractors, even if they're detracting you because they're just ignorant and racist. You still have to do something to address that. You can't just be like, well, we're in power now, so screw you. Well, OK, but that's what they do every time they're in power. And this will never end if that's how you govern. All right. Uh, well, it's 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 eleven twenty one. I think it's I think it's a, a, the perfect time to head to the music breakdown. All right. All right. We're back. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT eighty nine point five FM. I'm your host Darren Kaster, sitting in studio with a very full team today. We have Deirdre, we have Stefan, we have Ma. Uh, but right now, we're actually going to go to a pre-record. Uh, from Tim Nash, who's a, a long-time occasional uh, contributor to this program. Uh, I'm going to get right to it. It's a little longer than, a, than an interview than we like to play, so I'm going to get right to it. But, d- but do not take that as a cue that uh, this is going to be long and boring. This was an exceptional interview. I actually really wanted to kit- cut several minutes out of this interview, uh, and I couldn't because it's extremely on point. So please uh, enjoy Tim Nash here, and I apologize. I'm second time ever teching. I'm going to take one more second to actually get this cued because uh, I'm new. Did I make it happen? <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. All right, we got it. So here, uh, here is Tim Nash talking about the Robin Hood tax. So, Tim, you're no stranger to the, to the program you've been on. You're still the title holder for the most ever visits to the program. And one of the reasons is that we have very, very good discussions about money. And that's not an area that I'm an expert in. Uh, but we speak, we've spoken a lot about before on the show, and I, I have the pleasure of speaking to you in, in, in private about that, too, because we both work at the Center for Social Innovation. And one of the things that I've been observing, this is just sort of me here, but one of my observations recently is that whether you want to take it in the form of Brexit or you want to take it in the form of Bernie Sanders or, you, or maybe even want to take it in the form of something more local like the, the, uh, the, the much larger than anticipated liberal government here that was, that was elected somewhat recently, uh, there seems to be a unusual, should we say, historically unusual appetite for change at a global level. You know, we could even take this all the way back to the Arab Spring. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be a lot going on, and there, the, the, you know, it seems to be undirected, uh, but there's an appetite for change, and I think partially that comes from, even if people maybe don't can't put their, quite their finger on why or what it is they're frustrated about, there's just a lot of general frustration at the quote-unquote, the system. Uh, and so without going too much further into it, because we're going to get sort of discuss this later, that was sort of where my head was at. And you shot back with, I have a plan. 
And I, so I said, well, okay, well, let's hold on. Let's not blow it too early. Come in and tell me about this plant. So that's all the setup I'm going to give you. Uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about how one of these things. So if we, if we need some big change and people yeah. have an appetite for change, how can we direct this at actual change? And sure. I would like you to tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I want to acknowledge the fact that people are frustrated right now and that people are afraid right now. Um, and that actually quite a few people are really angry right now. And I think that a lot of the cause of that frustration and that fear and that anger um, is because of our economy. And the fact that our economy is not working for most people in the world right now. A small number of people are getting very, very, very wealthy uh, off the backs of the vast majority of humans on this planet and certainly at the expense of future generations when we start to look at some of the ecological damage that we're doing. So I want to start by a place that like, it's okay to feel uh, uh, frustrated or fearful or angry, that that's a very rational emotion to be feeling right now. Um, and I want to take you back to a time where I think a lot of us sort of felt that for the first time, which is after the uh, uh, financial collapse so 2008 into 2009, even really into 2010, when things had gone really, really badly, we saw a lot of wealth just simply wiped off the books, uh, um, and uh, the job market just completely dried up. And that's where we started to see some movements, and chief sort of front and center for me was Occupy Wall Street. And that we witnessed during that time the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world, from the poorest people in America to the richest people in America. There's a direct transfer of wealth there. And rightfully so, people got angry and people got upset. And so I want to remind you who was responsible for that, which was the financial system, uh, which was the, the big banks and a lot of the risk takers within the financial system. So fast forward now, here we are in 2016. And we can see that this anger has continued. Um, oftentimes a measure that we use is uh, called consumer confidence. And the question that they ask is, will you be earning more money in six months than you are right now? So I'll put this out to the listeners. Do you feel confident that you will be earning more money in six months than you are right now? And if you're anything like a lot of my friends in my community, that answer is no. And in fact, we're going to be lucky if, we've, if we get our contract extended or if we're able to maintain this status quo over, uh, in six months from now, we're doing well. So there's a lot, there, there are a lot of those heightened emotions. Uh, so what do we do about it? Well, what we've been doing I don't think is the best, which is uh, uh, really directing that at uh, our political organization. So in a democracy, we have this wonderful ability to be able to vote, and we are using that vote largely as a protest vote. Uh, so we got rid of Stephen Harper here in Canada, and, you know, I, for one, was down with that. Um, you know, uh, uh, in England, we absolutely saw the Brexit vote, I think, and, I, you know, I wasn't there, and I don't want to uh, put words in people's mouth, but I think a large part of it was uh, anger and frustration that the current system wasn't working mm. and that people capitalized on that with specific fears uh, around immigration and around trade and exports, and that that became the target for a lot of this anger and frustration. Uh, we're definitely seeing it in the US and what's 
fascinating about the U.S. is watching it on both sides. You have Donald Trump with the Republicans, right? And, and that, obviously, he's directing that fear in ways that I don't agree with, again, largely at uh, immigrants. Um, and then you've got Bernie Sanders, which I think is a lot of the same emotions, that sort of fear and anger, although uh, uh, of a much more gentle nature, I think, when a little bird can come and fly up on your podium and that's sort of the symbol for you. And, uh, uh, but there, you know, and I think Bernie had it right in really directing it at uh, large multinational companies and specifically the financial industry. So the, the policy, the, the solution that I wanted to put on the table that, you know, and I never like talking in, in absolutes, nothing is a silver bullet. Uh, we will need lots and lots of different measures. But if I were in charge uh, of the global economy for a day, uh, I would implement what is often called a financial transactions tax uh, in my economics, in my sort of academic uh, a day, it was called the Tobin tax hmm. after the fellow who, who first suggested it. Um, and the term that I like to use, and as much as possible in this interview, I'll be using the term the Robin Hood tax. And what I like about the Robin Hood tax by doing that, and so let me explain the policy. The policy is a very, very small tax on financial transactions. So Tobin, when he introduced it, looked just at currency conversions. Right, And now we're talking about a very, very small percentage, and I want to be clear on how small that is. Um, you know, when you think about 1%, obviously that's a very small number. Now in financial terms, we talk about basis points. Mm-hmm. And a basis point is 1% of 1%. So just to do the math, right? You know, if I wanted to, to do what's 1% of $100, it would be, you know, 100 times 0.01. Now, one basis point is going to be one cent on $100. So 0.01% is a basis point. And we're looking at implementing, you know, this would be a tax. You know, I've heard it anywhere from at the most 50 basis points, which is a half percentage. Um, at the very least, I'd be happy even with, you know, five basis points which is, you know, five cents for every hundred dollars that you convert. So it's tiny, tiny, tiny little tax. But because the financial system um, uh, moves so quickly and because we have all of these day traders and now it's not even jobs, it's, it's computers, it's algorithms doing this day trading for us. Because they move at such this high velocity, charging them this tiny transaction tax will result in billions and billions and likely hundreds of billions of dollars globally in added revenues. Hmm. So the, the intention behind the Tobin tax originally was actually not to raise revenue. It was to lower volatility of currency exchange rates. So by implementing a tax on currency exchanges, we reduce the incentive and now all of a sudden if those traders are gonna make money you know, to buy and sell, they need a higher margin. To account for that tax, it's going to make their lives a little bit difficult. But for me, if I'm you know, going to Detroit to do some shopping or you know, hang out there for the weekend, it's, I'm going to be paying literally pennies. Mm. And, then, um, uh, and then now that this idea has now evolved to include things like derivatives, uh, which is essentially sort of this in the, the capitalist casino. Uh, it's how people make bets on the economy. Um, and then as well, looking at, at things like these credit default swaps 
and these different, you know, financial, they call them financial innovations that actually led to the financial crash. Putting a very small tax on those is going to reduce the incentive for people to be buying, selling them at such a quick pace. Hmm. Now, the side benefit is that we're going to raise hundreds of billions of dollars in tax revenue. And, you know, when I look at a lot of the problems that we face right now, and be it poverty uh, or be it climate change, um, we have the solutions. The problem is that we're not implementing them. And, and I think one of the big reasons is because they're so expensive. I mean, we could eradicate poverty right now. We know guaranteed minimum income. Sure, do your pilot projects, but we know that would work. We know homelessness. We could house everyone. The problem is scarcity of resources. Mm. Climate change. We know that we could shift into a renewable energy economy very, very quickly. Right? The problem is that it might cost us a little more upfront than we're willing to spend right now. So all of these uh, 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 global big problems that, that we face, we have solutions for them. The problem is that you know, we're kind of convinced that we should live in this world of austerity. And the problem is that governments don't have any money to fund them. So what I like about the term Robin Hood tax and why that's the, the language that I'm using is because that it suggests by default that we will be taxing the rich. Rich people will disproportionately be affected by this tax. Uh, but at the same time, it also assumes that we're going to be taking that money and funding it to programs. And, and personally, I would start with the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. They're not perfect, but it would be a really, really good start if we just simply knew that we had ample funding for those programs. Hmm. So I think we're, we're about half, a little bit over halfway through our time, so I want to sort of jump in with some of the, I mean, you, you've very well done, did an excellent job sort of outlining the basic concept, and I think honestly, I think most of our listeners will have, to some degree, at least a, a, some frame of reference for what you're talking about. It's not a, it's not a totally alien uh, concept. Um, what I think where I think the discussion generally stops on those things is people, um, many people have been convinced, I would argue personally, that a lot of this is ideological in, in, in its founding, uh, in its grounding, um, but are, have been convinced essentially that what you're talking about just doesn't work, not for any particular reason, but just like, right. oh, oh, that sounds crazy, you, yeah. you crazy liberal. Right. So, I mean, but one of the things that immediately jumped to mind was recently California uh, did, an, I think this is a picture-perfect example of this. Uh, California has a, a serious, seri uh, like many places do, like any major city does, really, uh, a, a serious problem with houselessness or homelessness. And what they eventually realized is that after you pay state jails to jail these people or mental institutions, uh, or, or the, the infrastructure and the, the overhead cost associated with food programs and food stamps and all this stuff, that it actually, at the end of the day, when you add up all these programs, so, you know, okay, fine. Well, if you just say to hell with you, then great, that costs zero. But if you're going to do something, even if it means, okay, well, we have to jail you from, by, because we make sleeping on the street illegal, that it's way more expensive to do that than it is to simply build and give these people houses. Totally. Uh, and, and I think that this is, even that concept is something that, that blows some people's mind. But that concept not only is, is totally true, and it's easily provable by math. It's not ideological. We just, I can prove it to you. It's math. Yeah. Uh, but that this concept applies to a wide area of topics. Right. Um, so I, w I wanted to know if, if you could dig maybe a little bit more into that sort of like, why do you think that it seems so obvious? Yeah. Why is this such a hard thing? So uh, a couple things. So, uh, you know, from a cash flow perspective, it's just understanding if someone goes to jail, right, that that's going to be paid out over a certain number of years. 
Whereas to build that home and to, to house that person, it's upfront money. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a cash flow problem. Mm. And if you look at, you know, sort of the, we can look at the government in California, right? They, they have a cash flow problem. They have a serious debt right now. And we're in this mode of austerity, austerity, we need balanced budgets. And so if a, a, a politician is going to step up and fund that homelessness program, that's going to come out of this year's budget that they are responsible for. Whereas they can very easily kick that problem down the can mm. by putting people in jail. And then it'll be the next term. And hopefully they'll, well, I'll get to a next term, but not for sure. So I'd rather kind of kick the can down the road. So a lot of this is we really are uh, uh, putting this on to future generations. And it does bother me a little bit, this sort of generational divide that, you know, when I look at older generations that, that we're able to, to live a life of, you know, sort of quite comfort and that now have pensions and that now have these things that are really foreign to, to sort of to my generation. They've left us not only with a huge fiscal debt in terms of our governments, but also an ecological debt. And one of the problems is that we're now not allowed to use that debt because we're in this mode of austerity and balanced budgets. We're not allowed to use the same tool that they used to get out of those programs, to get out, to solve their problems, to build their infrastructure. So that we know that if we build affordable housing, legit affordable housing, that will reduce our costs in the long run. But now, because of austerity and debt limits, and everyone's worried about debt, this big scary monster, you know, called government debt, we're now not allowed to use that tool to be able to fund the infrastructure that our generation needs, that are going to reduce our costs in the long term. Um, and then really, you know, I think that, that what's, it's always interesting to talk about power dynamics. And, you know, I think that people right now are exercising their democratic right and, and are voting for change in, in jurisdictions all over the world. Um, but w- when, when I look at the power dynamics, I realize that governments no longer have the power that they once did. If we look at power concentrations in the world, it is now among large multinational corporations and largely the power is in the financial system. That if, you know, they have way more power than our governments do. They certainly have much bigger budgets than our governments do. So for me, it's really about, you know, exercising our democratic right, not just to vote in elections, but also to vote with our dollars in terms of how we consume and also to vote with our investments which is obviously a, a, an issue that's very passionate to me, where if we can start investing more locally and in things that have a positive impact on the planet, we can earn good money while we do it. But that's going to that's gonna give those projects and those companies uh, the resources that they need in order to grow. And so there's really, there are, there are powers that are going to try to convince you that this is going to destroy the economy. Um, you know, I, I, as I was doing research for this interview, I was looking up different perspectives on, on this uh, Robin Hood tax. And, you know, uh, uh, a think tank had come up with a report saying that if they do it in the U.S., that the um, uh, uh, S&P 500 is going to fall by 12.5%. I mean, that's just, that's idiotic. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Right? And yet that's the fear mongering. Well, and I bet I bet that was probably an example. I'm just, I'm super guessing here. I haven't looked. At, I don't I, honestly. I don't even know what the SMTP is. Sure. So, okay. But, but my instinct on that is the same thing as usual, which was the the story. Just from ten years of doing this show, the story yeah. almost always is that was someone who either willfully or ignorantly we won't we won't assume which sure. way, but did it did one cost accounting. Sure. They removed, okay, well, you remove this from the thing, but they didn't account for, okay, but what happens when we put all that money in regular mm. citizens' hands who need this for day-to-day items, and they didn't calculate Correct. that side of it. 
And this is the biggest issue. And so when it comes to funding poverty prevention, or when it comes to implementing Robin Hood tax, here's one of the most important things to understand is that governments, as they give, do stimulus and actually spend money, they want to have the biggest multiple on that money. The problem is that when we give tax breaks for the wealthy, wealthy people aren't going to spend that extra money. They're much more inclined to save it. So if you're already a millionaire and I give you an extra $1,000 in tax breaks, you might spend part of it. You might buy you know, that third jet ski or that fourth you know, Lamborghini or whatever. Unlikely. Chances are most of that $1,000, you're just going to invest it, which doesn't really have a big knock-on effect in our economy. But if you're poor and you're currently living on social assistance right now and you're struggling to get by and I give you $1,000, what are you going to do with it? Gone. Gone. And you're going to spend it, in, in, hopefully, in your local economy, mm-hmm. right? Well, most of, yeah, most of it will go to food. And sure, somebody, somebody might buy a TV or something, but yeah. most of that's going to go to food. It's going to go to, to health supplies. It's going to go to health care. It's going to go to pay down credit card debt. It's going to go to whatever, but yeah, it's going to be spent because the people have immediate needs. That exactly. Not and guess what drives our economy? Consumption. And we can debate that. That's a bigger conversation. But so for me, if we're going to be doing this wealth redistribution, which, you know, right now the status quo of our system is to actually tax the poor because that's what interest on debt is. And if you're poor and you're forced to be in debt, you are paying money for that debt, right? And right now that money is going directly to the, to the wealthy, to the rich people, people who own debt, who have bonds, who have those investments. So right now the default system is a wealth redistribution from the poor to the rich. We're seeing the rich get richer. We're seeing the middle class essentially evaporate. And now we're in this situation where our economy is stagnant. Well, it's no surprise because as the rich get richer, they don't spend that money. They invest it. They don't go buy more groceries. No, right? They, they go out there and, and they put it to work in the financial system, which, hey, that's their right. You know, when they want to maximize their returns, sure, by all means, that's their money. They can do that. But if we're looking at it from a, an economic perspective, that money is way more useful in the hands of the world's poorest because they're more, much more likely to spend it. That spending is actually what's going to drive the growth in our economy that all of the economists and all the rich people are clamoring. How come the economy is not growing faster? Well, it's because you're hogging all the money and you're putting it in places where it's not driving that, that uh, economic growth. All right. So we're running really tight on time, Tim. In fact, we're, we're normally over the length of an interview. But there was one last thing I really want to get from, sure. which is, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping you're going to pick my cue on here that you're going to know what I want you to say. But uh, I want you to blow some right-wingers' minds right now, make them freak out, make their heads explode. What could, what could the upper end of this end game be? What, what's the biggest thing we can go for as far as change? So, okay. So from, from my perspective, it's really about implementing a global Robin Hood tax. And we're now in a situation because you can't have it jurisdiction to jurisdiction. If we do it here in Ontario, all the banks are just going to move to New York. We saw it. Sweden tried that. Half the activity moved to the UK. So this has to be a global tax, right? Now, in order to have a global tax, we need a a, a global governing body that has the ability to tax people. So if I'm going to blow up people's minds right now, I'm going to use the UN. I know it's not the best... Uh, organization, but it's right now, it's the, the best global governing body that we have. And I would give the UN the rights to be able to implement a global financial transaction tax. Um, and, and in doing so, use that money to directly be able to fund those UN sustainable development goals. And if we could do that, 
Uh, I think that would solve so many of our problems. It's still going to take humans to actually do the work and solve it, but at least we're not going to have to worry about where the money's coming from. And I think we could, do a, we could do a whole show on that, and I think I would like to at some point about what that could look like. I certainly have a lot of thoughts, but we're definitely out of time. Uh, so for now, once again, thank you so much for joining us, Tim Nash. My pleasure. All right, so that again was Tim Nash, the Sustainable Economist. Uh, you can find him on our website, greenmajority.ca, uh, for more information uh, about him and what he does. Uh, learn about him. He uh, does regular blog posts and all sorts of other interesting things and just is a generally all-around swell guy. Uh, so we're going to go now uh, pretty rapidly to our second and final music break because we're uh, already into the third section technically. So uh, thank you very much for listening. You're listening to The Green Majority, of course, uh, perhaps on one of our fabulous and very appreciated radio partners. You could be listening live here at CIUT 89.5. FM, or you could be listening on the podcast. The podcast version, uh, of course, comes with an extended bonus show. Today it's going to be all Deirdre and me, uh, but I'm going to let her tease what that's going to be about in the final section after the uh, after this music break. Uh, and of course, I cannot forget Rabble.ca as well for promoting us. So without uh, any further delay, we're going to go now to our second music break, which is... All right, I'm afraid that's it. We're going to keep it real tight today, but you can learn more about Last Hologram on our website. And I think, Stefan, you have more information about that as well. Uh, yeah, just to say that uh, the, the, the CD release party, I teased that I'd tell you where it is now. Uh, so it's going to be the Drake, Undergr- uh, the Drake Hotel Underground. Uh, it's 11.50 Queen West tomorrow. So if you're listening live or if you get the podcast on Friday or on Saturday, listen to it. Uh, that is July 23rd tomorrow at 7.30 to 11 at the Drake Underground Hotel. Check them out. Uh, and thanks so much for giving us the music. I like having I like looking at band music. It's, it feels more personal. I enjoy it. Yeah, Stefan, uh, you you seem to bump into a lot of bands around there at uh, CSIN. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's just a lot of there's just a lot of artists sitting around the space, which yeah. is always pleasant. So I'm, I feel like I'm about to like completely make Stefan's life difficult. But if you're a Toronto band, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Go harass him at CSIN. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's get right down to the rest of the the show, and I believe we're we're tossing it back off. I'll, I'll let you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna fire through a couple different stories. Uh, first, a uh, few of them are for tech related. So we're gonna start with uh, Google uh, has used AI to cut its data set energy by five by fifteen percent, and what's what's impressive about this is that the, is that the fifteen percent uh, number of just of the data centers. Obviously, data centers are this bi- are this piece of, of of technology that is that are basically the highest part of, of energy sucks for the internet. The internet runs off these data centers, and these data centers. Uh, when you talk about the the the, the, co- the climate cost of, of the internet, it is these data centers. Yeah. One and of the notes from that article was that two percent of global G- uh, greenhouse gas emissions, two percent of all global greenhouse gas emissions, are literally just from Google data centers, which yeah. is crazy. And Google has uh, comparable emissions to the country of Laos. So. I thought that was interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> Google has, again, Google has comparable emissions to a country. So mm. that is the significance. Yeah. So good on them for actually releasing that data on themselves. Yeah, about and, five and million f- times the GDP of Laos, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Good I point. Gonna, I, I was going to say, I was going to say, can you, can you ask Lao a bunch of random words and it will show you the, in it, in the article <laughs> you want? Because Google can. Um, no but, disrespect to Lao. Of course not. No, yes. We, we, sorry. We love Lao. Um, the uh, but, but I guess what that does actually put in perspective though is is how impressive a, a country coming out and saying we cut our emissions by fifteen percent in the sector really would be. 
uh, especially you know the highest highest sector. Um, but yeah, so the way they did it is also interesting. Is that they they're using artificial intelligence? Uh, they're they're us- they're basically the again. This is probably one of those things where I can say the one sentence in of piece of information that I've been given. But if I tried to dive into it at all, it would require a ton of information that I would not understand because it's a bunch of uh, it's a bunch of engineering that I don't have. Uh, but I can tell you uh, that they used artificial intelligence, uh, which are more effective at managing these data centers than humans. Uh, however, whatever that means, uh, they're more efficiently managing than humans, and that managed to reduce by 15%. I mean, anytime any sentence includes the concepts of computer or some sort of technology does something better than humans, I find that very easy to believe. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, they are, yeah, exactly. Well, to going back to whether or not you could ask a random bunch of humans whether or not you, you know, a bunch of string of words together and see what happens, Google AI can figure that out, and Google AI can manage these data centers. Uh, so that's the fun fact, the story of the day. It's a mild, mildly positive story that tech maybe slowly trying to resist energy use, which is great. Uh, but you have another one. Yeah, and just just on that last story, something that jumped out at me is really what this AI is managing is sort of the peak that peak energy that's generated when we all collectively and aggregated up watch YouTube videos at a certain time in mm. the in the day, for example. You know, so they're managing that sort of peak energy and cooling systems and that kind of thing. But there's some, you know, let's not get lost in the personal responsibility. Every time you click that YouTube video, you're using energy and multiply that by a billion people, right? And that's why you got these high emissions. So I just wanted to point that out. You need to zoom in and zoom out. Um, on to the next story, which is about Facebook um, that has successfully completed a test flight of a solar-powered drone um, that it hopes will extend internet connectivity to every corner of the planet. So basically what they did, they did this uh, test run with the solar-powered drone, and it was up in the air at a few thousand feet for 96 minutes, and this was deemed to be a highly successful uh, flight test. And what they really hope is that these drones will be an army of them. That sounds a little ominous. I did that on purpose. Um, will be up there communicating one with one another in a network to deliver internet access. They actually are, are going to beam it down. It does say that in the article. Um, and they want them to be up there for at least three months at a time. And they want to break the record, actually, for solar-powered aviation. This is Google's, um, Google, not sorry, rather Facebook's aim. But Google has also invested in similar kind of tech in terms of delivering internet to hard to reach places through high altitude balloons. So I think there, you know, with both stories, you know, I think we have to look at sort of the science fiction dimensions of this. We've got AI managing our our energy usage. Uh, we've got drones provided via Facebook. Um, providing internet potentially to hard-to-reach places. And these things, you know, we can't always project what this is going to mean for our society. I think it's really interesting that Facebook is going upstream in terms of they they have a lot of people on Facebook. They want that to grow, that number. And they're going upstream by actually providing the internet service that will allow people to get on Facebook and controlling that. So interesting stuff futuristic stuff. I was going to say that uh, that maybe it was a way to reduce your company. You could go outside, but apparently even going outside is technology-based now. Deirdre. Okay. <laughs> That's good. That was a good segue. Thank you. Um, that sounds like the beginning of War of the Worlds, by the way. Um, and I was just going to ask you if one of the drones' names was Scotty. <laughs> we could start some sort of campaign to name the drones, but that might be giving Facebook too much publicity. But that always brings me back to our favorite line about Bodie McBoatface. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, <laughs> maybe these drones can be Drony McDroneface. 
We can do this. Can we can do this. Start that petition. <laughs> Stephanie, right you're now. in charge of the hashtag. Yeah. Drony Mc, well, hashtag? hashtag Drony McDrone face, obviously. <laughs> Anyways, take control of this conversation here. Okay. Um, in other technology news, Pokemon Go officially uh, legally came out in Canada last week, although I guess people have been playing it for the past like three weeks or so. Um, and it's probably not an exaggeration to say that Pokemon Go has kind of taken over the world, uh, basically. So in the bonus show, we're going to be talking a little bit about how it might be changing the way that people interact with their environment um, from observations in and around the city. Um, and we'll also be following uh, up on our ferret story that we introduced last week. So it'll be a good one. And if you didn't listen to the ferret story of last week, then you should probably download the podcast. Um, so that's, sorry, 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 that's one more reason that people skip the entire show to just listen to the podcast. Exactly. Because there are ferrets on the bonus show. And, and this is this is hardcore in the realm of science fiction. The oh, whole yeah. ferret thing. Oh, yeah. The ferret thing. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. It involves M&M's, drones, and now... Genetic engineering. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now for our climate catastrophe news story of the week. Um, <laughs> a satellite story or a satellite study published in the, the journal Geophysical Research uh, earlier last week um, has suggested that the Greenland ice sheet has lost one trillion tons of ice. Uh, over the over three years between 2011 and 2014, um, and the rate of that loss is just uh, increasing. Um, it has lost Greenland has lost approximately nine trillion tons um, over the last century of ice. And um, normally, when we talk about sea level rise and climate change, we're talking about centimeters, inches over a few years, um, but. Uh, over since 1996, um, these scientists are saying that Greenland, solely as a country, has contributed uh, to up to 10% of the global sea level rise. So the fact that Greenland is melting is is huge news for climate change and um, may maybe uh, maybe a big problem. Um, I mean, we've all known since basically elementary school that like Greenland is icy and Iceland is green. But this story has quantitatively proven that, uh, well, exactly how icy Greenland is and how significant that is in relation to the current climate problem. Um, Over the past few years, it's lost an average of 269 billion tons per year. Um, and um, though the losses have fluctuated, um, this melt is only from five glaciers, and that's only a small portion of the country. Um, one of the glaciers um, called the Jake, Jack, Jacobshan Glacier. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. If only we um, had the glacier, the glacier here, we could ask it to correct the yeah. pronunciation. So it was made famous Come by um, <laughs> James Balog's Chasing Ice documentary. Um, and uh, the calving event is one of the most famous calving events uh, of the climate story. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you should Google it because it's pretty crazy. Um, so that's only five glaciers, and it's contributed an incredible amount to the current the current sea, le- sea level rise, and what these scientists think is that um, it could contribute uh, up to six meters of sea level rise if the country's ice sheets melt. And 
because because of the scale, that's that's like that's insane. Like a few inches could probably sink a city. Yeah. <laughs> a few feet could uh-huh. probably sink, sink like a small island, and a few meters could sink a small archipelago. Yeah. <laughs> and those simulations have been done. You can I, I, I may or may not have time to add it to the actual show post, but if you just Google, uh, like, you know, what would the world look like with X amount of water rise, there are tons of simulations uh, that you can actually go and see mm-hmm. uh, precisely, you know, how little rise was required to get rid of, for instance, Florida. Yeah, Florida yeah. does not do well on almost all of this. <laughs> uh, we are, however, unfortunately out of time. The bonus show today will be, I believe, just Deirdre and I, and Deirdre will uh, help me discuss a little bit more about why you should actually care about Pokemon Go, even if you're nauseated by video games, or if you think it's all very silly, uh, you should care, and we're going to help explain why, but we are out of time. Thank you so much for listening to The Green Majority, all of our fabulous radio partners, of course, uh, M.A., Deirdre, and Stefan for joining me again this week, and uh, we'll be right back if you're on The Bonus Show. Otherwise, have a good Green Week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon. That's it for the regular program this week. We're going to get into our bonus show now, which is just Deirdre and I this week, and we talk a little bit about genetic uh, engineering. We talk a bit about a moon base, uh, and we talk about Pokemon Go uh, in a context that may surprise some people. I think that this is going to be far more relevant to our audience than uh, than you may immediately uh, think at first blush. So please do enjoy the bonus show with Deirdre and I this week and uh, thanks for listening. If you can, please as a reminder, you can become a member of the Green Majority, help support our work and help get the work out there, uh, word out there about what we do as well as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, we are in desperate need of some new equipment right now. Some of our original stuff is starting to burn out so it's a great time to become a member. You can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green majority. Enjoy the bonus show. Hi everyone, welcome to the after show. The after after show. Um we're going to be focusing on wildlife today, I guess. Um and that means both virtual and real wildlife. Uh and that is both natural and genetically engineered wildlife. Um so I don't know. All sorts of technology-related wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> all, so- all sorts of wildlife in this 21st century world. Yeah. Um, do you want to start with the, the genetic modified stuff and we'll do Pokemon second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. uh, you're, you're the expert on this today because sure. I didn't even read that article, so go ahead. Um, <laughs> so if you guys didn't listen to the show last week, um, we were talking about the black-footed ferret. Uh, so the black-footed ferret is an endangered species in North America and... In 1987, um, only 18 black-footed ferrets were left in the world. And since then, it's become kind of a conservation success story. Um, and through capture, captive breeding in zoos, um, I think we're up to around 300 captive black-footed ferrets and maybe a couple of small populations in the wild. Um, last week we talked about vaccinating them, and this week we're talking about um, a different way that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is proposing to help this species survive. Um, so what we have now, even though it's considered kind of a conservation success story, is basically essentially an interbreeding family of half-sibling ferrets, uh, which, of course, has its problems, Um including making the ferrets highly susceptible to genetic diseases. So the Fish and Wildlife Service now is looking at um, partnering with a group called 
the Long Now Foundation um, and a program they have called the Revive and Restore Program. Um, and that is also partnered with the Zoological Society of San Diego and San Diego Zoo's uh, Frozen Zoo, which harbors a bunch of specimens um, and genetic diversity that they're proposing to use to revitalize this species. Um, and what I mean by that um, is basically cloning. Um, either cloning or uh, a newer method, which is now termed uh, gene editing, using a technology called CRISPR. Now, the uh, first thing before we even move on to yeah. that, I want to ask your opinion. Do you find, as far as terms that make you uncomfortable, are you more comfortable with cloning or are you more comfortable with gene editing? I find both to be slightly ominous. They're, they're both slightly, slightly ominous. Um, I'm not really familiar with gene editing, but uh, at least cloning... A cloning to me seems like a little less of a step in fully engineering a genome. Uh, yeah, and to, to be clear, I'm I'm fairly positive that they don't mean like test tube whole cloth creation. They're talking about cloning like cloning genes, not cloning yeah. like full complete animals. Well, yet I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm pretty but sure that's not possible yet. The whole. The, the whole CRISPR technology, the fact that it's called CRISPR kind of uh, freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, there are just a whole bunch of ethical concerns uh, that, that's, that are related to, to anything to do with modifying the gene and uh, the genome and playing God, even though it, it might help the species. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the whole rewilding uh, fad kind of that became really exciting um in the science world a few years ago um have you okay um well there are a couple of really good ted talks on it one's by uh george monbio mm -hmm. and the title of the talk is called for more wonder rewild the world um and another one is by uh Stuart brand whose talk is called the dawn of extinction are you ready um, and a few years back, I don't know if you remember this or if you heard of it, there was talk of a paleo park uh, opening in northern the northern part of the continent. Um, and the rumor was that some rich guy was going to um, start bringing back woolly mammoths and uh, all, all of those animals that were present in Paleozoic, Cenozoic, those like really, really long time ago, and just put them in park. Basically, like Jurassic Park so, yes, the comes to Jurassic North Park, America, yeah. <laughs> um, and now that's possible. Um, and scientists are considering not maybe not that extreme, but some scientists are considering that extreme. They are considering like, what if we brought woolly mammoths back, and what if we brought like certain dinosaurs back? Like, what would happen? Um, but for now, uh, we're sticking to ferrets. <laughs> well, I'm actually so, I'm I'm actually super happy it's just you and me this week because we can like totally nerd the hell. Out yeah. of um, I've had a I've had an idea for a while, and this is sort of one of those things where people go, "Oh, come on, you're being silly." Okay, well, yes, it's just because it's po not possible today doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss it, and that's one of my most my biggest irritations with uh, with people in discussions about this, whether we're talking about on the show or just in personal life. We'll be like, "Well, if it's not possible, we shouldn't discuss it," and that's foolishness. That's the be most important things to discuss because yeah. it's going to be we could those are things we could do. I mean, you mm -hmm. you would if that's your attitude, then we'd have never made it to the moon, right? Yeah, I mean, science fiction drives change it drives progress and it has done so for 
for decades now. Yeah. So one of one of my ideas along that line, and I think it relates to this, and it actually it relates to something that would make me significantly more comfortable with the, you know, we had a we had a very important discussion, and I won't go through it again because it was uh, we it would take most of the rest of the time we have, uh, but go back a couple of bonus shows. Maybe I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but where we sort of talked about my frustration at least with the misunderstanding of GMOs. So in the in the you know mm-hmm. go back and listen to that episode if you if you want if you're finding that you need context for what I'm about to say and pause it now and then come back to this. But as far as the extreme end, the stuff that actually does make me uncomfortable, uh, the reason I'm uncomfortable with it is because it's a genie you can't put back in the bottle. Uh, And there's a number of these technologies, whether we're talking about whole cloth cloning, like you're discussing, uh, whether we're talking about gene editing, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, creating uh, essentially life forms from scratch. I mean, we've already created uh, synthetic uh, RNA um, and stuff like that. Like the, these are current technologies, essentially. They're not, they're not in general practice use, mm-hmm. but they're, they're existent technologies. I think that something we should be very, very interested in promoting and, and, and working you know, with, with global uh, space powers is to literally create a moon base. And this moon base would be a research center so that we had a completely safe way to test these sort of more extreme, more experimental technologies that have, you know, and if they go wrong, they go really, really, really wrong side to them. Uh, but I think, you know, the, A, we're never going to stop progress. So these things are going to be researched no matter what we do, even if it's in some underground lab, you know, under a bunker in North Korea, someone is going to do them. Um, you know, that we need to say, okay, well, how we can't prevent this technology. So how can we limit the danger of it? Um, and I think we should have, we need to be having a serious conversation about moon base. It's, it's, yeah. it's extremely conceivable, yeah. uh, especially, you know, as space travel gets more and more efficient, the idea of going back and forth from the moon is also not going to be something as far as a regular trips is not going to be implausible for very much longer and neither are any of these technologies and i think that that makes an extremely practical solution and i think that's that's also the sort of thing that i mean we're talking you know about ideas like the international space station um you know which could serve essentially as a shuttle point so you get people up to the the international space station and there's essentially a, a, a ferry not literally obviously between the international space station and the and a, some sort of moon base um this is entirely possible and i think we should be having serious conversations about it. i don't think it's silly at all i think it's i think it's proactive and smart I don't know. What are your feelings? Yeah, I I think that's a great idea. I mean, it's it's a little it still kind of weirds me out uh, that that it's a possibility. But I mean, I bet like in 1984 they were kind of weirded out too. So yeah. no weapons testing because we no. don't want to we don't want to <laughs> knock the moon out of its orbit. And, and as that's long as Google is in control and yes. and we, we only do good. Yeah, no Facebook, only Google, <laughs> only Google. And then what we could do is we could play we could put some Pokestops on the moon. Which Some focus stops. Which is my segue. That is a great segue. Uh, but before we segue, uh, I'm going to say that uh, what really concerns me is the the genes that we're selecting for the ferret population. Like they're going to increase diversity by uh, by putting new genes into these ferrets. But how do you choose which genes to put in them? That's that's what should be tested on the moon base. Yeah. Um, but Pokemon. Um, Why don't you start us off with that, Darren? Sure. Okay. So um, if you haven't heard of this, you've been living under a rock and you probably don't learn to listen to this program, Uh, but you're not necessarily playing it. So uh, basically, this is a just really quick recap if you're sort of somehow still not entirely sure what's going on. It's an augmented reality game that essentially adds. It's not so much a game in the sense of like a cell phone game. It's a game in the sense of that it's gamified walking. 
Uh, <laughs> so what happens is there's a you know it's it's a Google subsidiary. It's a Google bought out a company that was doing augmented reality games, which just takes reality and, and imposes things on them, uh, virtual things onto the real world. Um, and the game involves moving around, and and the game is specifically designed not just sort of as a consequence, but intentionally designed to force you to move around in the real world. There's certain you you have to move out of a single location to play this game. So it can't you can't just sit in your apartment and play it. Um, except in extremely limited circumstances and and even then you don't there's there's certain incentives that that actually require you to move around and one of the consequences of this without going into the into the game itself so much uh, because that's not really why we wanted to bring it up um, was the idea that you know I was just observing before the show that uh, and I've been very very observant of the fact that um, there's a few areas and again I won't go into super huge detail about how this works but there's things you can lay out in the game that are on a map, which is how you find things. So it's on a Google map. They've simply added to the Google map some virtual things. Uh, and on this virtual map, everybody can see them. And there are certain things that uh, increase your experience or do whatever, do certain things. And a, a single player or a single user can add them to the game for a limited amount of time. But every player of the game at anywhere can see them and, and will gain the rewards from it. And so what happens is, and they're, they're appropriately called lures, and what happens is, is that you, you, know, you have probably, a, I would guess there's probably close to three-quarters of a million players in Toronto alone right now, um, is that if you, someone drops a lure in a public place, which is all of them, uh, people wander towards that way because they want to get the free rewards. And so what I've observed over this week as, as I've been fiddling around with it, because I find technology neat and I'm a gamer unabashedly, uh, was that uh, every, there's this park near my house where there's a bunch of stuff and, and it's right near a college dorm. And so these college students uh, keep basically every night have been dropping these lures, which you have to pay real money for. It's not that expensive, but they've been doing them for like the lures last half an hour. And it's basically from six o'clock until midnight. Every night this week I've been there, there's basically been constant lures. So somebody's spending hundreds of dollars on this. Uh, but what's happened, because it's now, not only is it call everybody in the neighborhood uh, to go to that location to reap these benefits, um, but it's been happening every night. And so what, we've been, what I've been finding is that over the past couple of nights, I have never at any point between 6 p.m. and midnight seen any less than 50 people in this park. Uh, and I've seen upwards of easily upwards of 100, maybe even as many as 150 people. And so what, we're, what we have now... Uh, sorry, and an, 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 another brief, brief anecdote. A friend of mine has been turning on a bit counter, so something that, that measures uh, your walking distance. And he's interested. He was interested to know how this was this playing this game was affecting his personal habits. So he was turning on the bit counter, but only when he's playing the game. So only for, for walking that would not have otherwise transpired. Uh, and in the past three weeks, he was one of the early people that got it sort of before it was supposed to be released. Uh, has been somewhere upwards of around 90k of walking. Uh, in three weeks, uh, exclusively playing this game. That's exclusively in addition to day-to-day tasks. Um, and I think we, I think it's past the point where it's sort of like you know a neat thing. I think this is now at a level uh, where we can have a serious conversation about how this impacts. Sorry, there's a bus going by here. We, we, I think it comes back to where we can have a serious uh, uh, conversation about how this impacts human behavior. I mean, even if this game suddenly becomes not cool two weeks from now, uh, the genie is out of the bottle. The industry is now recognizing that there is a huge market for augmented reality games. This is a perfect concept, and gaming industry is billion. Even if you're not a gamer and you think games are silly, this is a multi-billion-dollar, potentially trillion-dollar-a-year industry. Uh, and specifically mobile games are a huge market. And so what we're going to see is even if this game, you know, suddenly people get bored of it two weeks from now, augmented reality games and the idea of people moving around in the real world and getting out of their house and moving around and participating in, in nature, whatever that nature may be, 
as a consequence of this game that they're playing is a real thing. And so even if you think that's silly and you think that, well, okay, we should have better reasons for being out in nature, the fact is we now have millions and people, hundreds of millions of people all over the world now who are now spending a significantly more amount of time out of nowhere, a giant increase of time outside moving around their city. And we can have a, we could you know think and talk about how this you know well you know making use of park space, but there's so many other implications. Uh, this is now people who are used to uh, gamers getting in and actually socializing, uh, get experiencing those benefits of the nature deficit disorder, and get actually getting outside. There's been numerous numerous reports of all these people that are you know really severe depression. You know I haven't left my house for anything other than a doctor's appointment or you know whatever for for years. Now I've been spending all this time outside, and it's been the first thing after all these drugs that improve their mood uh it's now pulling people to public parks that frankly there's some stuff in my neighborhood where i've never really felt even safe i don't live in a super great neighborhood going to those parks but now i go out at night and there's 200 people standing around and so i feel completely safe because it's not a dark shady thing at midnight now um so i mean this is having a serious impact in a, i think a way that is worthy of discussion and worthy of our time to think about and to talk about uh how a massive uptake in people just using public space i mean one of the other things was car drivers are going crazy because there's there's pedestrians everywhere all of a sudden well, those streets are ours, right? And and humans on foot have just as much right to use public space as, as cars do. And sure, maybe you shouldn't stand in the middle of the street for safety reasons. But if people actually – like if this continued, let's just say it continued. And this will be my final point before I throw back to you, Deirdre. Um, if this continues and this becomes a trend, you know, the idea of – you know, cars being the primary user of, or the most important user of public space and how we need to defer everything to cars. Uh, and that the, the sort of the opposition to that so far has been primarily just bikers. So other transit users. Uh, if we now have a thing about, hey, well, I want to walk around. Why is there all these cars in my damn way? The implications for a myriad of environmental issues uh, are, are going to be exemplified here. And, and I think we would be foolish to write this off as, as a game and that's silly and, oh, it's just popular, whatever. No, this, this can and will. Uh, have huge impacts on society. And I, I do not believe that I'm overstating that. Deirdre. Uh, I, yeah, you made a lot of a lot of points there. And uh, I'm just going to touch on a yeah, few sorry, of I them. I don't, know if you, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen the video of uh, the people in Central Park playing Pokemon Go, but it's really funny. If you guys haven't seen it, you should check it out. Um, just a bunch of people um, walking around looking at their phones. Um, all in the same place in Central Park, um, which kind of brings me to one of the cons um, of the potential cons of this software and the augmented reality world that we're entering right now. Um, and like, it's great that people are getting out into parks, um, but one thing that it's it might not be helping. In some ways, MA um, MA told us to do some cons of this software. Um, so MA not a user. <laughs> she's not a user, um, and I I'm I must admit that I'm not a user because I think if I start using it, it sounds like a drug. Um, it's probably going to ruin my life, and I will lose all productivity, all remaining productivity uh, that I've had since the dawn of YouTube. Um, and one of the, yeah, one of the cons is that people are getting outside, but they're still looking at their screens. Um, so if you don't choose to interact with the people around you, then you don't have to. You can stay in that world. And in this video of Central Park, people aren't talking, which is really weird. 
um, in that kind of situation where you're surrounded by people, but you're not interacting with them. So I think that's one of the cons that I see um, because it makes it unnecessary to interact with people. It's more likely for interaction than if they'd been in their basement. <laughs> it's would, true. would be my counter argument. <laughs> like I'm true. sort of, I, I'm sort of taking a one step at a time approach to this. Mm-hmm. Like get them outside first, get get them to appreciate the value of public space, and right. then maybe the next game. As I said, you know, there's, <laughs> within the mark my words, yeah. within the next six months, there's going to be twelve more, you know, big money augmented yeah. reality games. And now that we've this opened this gate, yeah. yeah, I think it, it it's a lot of opportunity for for game makers and programmers everywhere to take advantage of of getting people outside. Um, and how this technology can get people outside. And relating to that, another benefit of Pokemon Go is that it's getting people interested in natural history. Um, and from a perspective of um, a, a biologist, I guess, um, it's really, really cool because Pokemon Go, you don't find Pokemon, the certain Pokemon everywhere. You have to go to where they can be found. Um, so it's getting people interested in um, finding habitats, looking for habitats that you can find certain Pokemon, um, which is really, really cool in this world. And it might be kind of a gateway into getting them interested in real-life animals and where you can find them. Um, coming from a background of butterfly hunting, it's really, really interesting to look at the comparisons between that and Pokemon Go. Yeah, and I, th- I think that I think it, like some of those addressed too are, I mean, very easily concerned. We don't even necessarily have to wait for a new game to address them. I mean, it's this is this is the uh, initial launch of the first time there have been mm-hmm. other geocaching, which is this type of that's a general term for this type of game. Uh, there have been other geocaching games in fashion. Ni- in fact, Niantic uh, was a, c- a company that was bought out by Google because they'd already made a, a geocaching game, and Google decided they wanted to make this game, so they bought them out. And you know, okay, we'll skip that conversation. Uh, but I mean, this sort of thing is out there. So very easy. So, th- but this was the first First initial launch of a massive, large-scale, extremely successful game. As I said, it's a proof of concept. So it's it, we don't even necessarily have to wait for a new game. It's very easy for for Niantic to, or I should just say Google, frankly, um, mm-hmm. to add like a component where you have to interact with other players. For instance, so right now you can only you can only find stuff in nature, but you can't battle other players. It's very easy for them to add a component where. You know, you have to be within range of someone and battle them, and I mean that would I think that would immediately solve that conversation mm-hmm. uh, about you know interactivity. Uh, another interesting note to, uh, to point is that the the stops, what they're called, the poke stops, where uh, where you sort of they're kind of like chests. If you have any gaming lexicon at all, you'll understand with that how that works. You kind of go by and uh, pick stuff up from them, and they're in stand- stationary places. They're not random. They're all at. Um, some kind of landmark, right? So every single one is uh, a, f- a famous mural or a beautiful building or a church. And so one of the, the other things, this my, my same friend um, who was telling telling me about how much walking he'd been getting uh, was also saying about how much he'd learned about his city and mm-hmm. how many interesting uh, cultural things that he didn't realize was in his neighborhood. So, I mean, I think that, you know, that there is downsides to its current iteration, but these are solvable problems. Mm-hmm. And my, my verdict is there's way more good than negative that's mm-hmm. going to come out of this and that most of the negative can, can and will be addressed uh, because these are things that will improve the gaming experience as well as you know, address some of these social potential negatives. It would be cool if they had like, you know, like some riddle s- system like part of the game where you had to like go on some crazy hunt uh, based on like 
certain questions. You'd find like clues everywhere, like kind of like a scavenger hunt, but better for Pokemon. Um, so here you go, Pokemon Go. Yeah, I think and stay tuned. Something new to add to your system. Um, By the way, just one last point. I wanted to ahead. touch on um, your point about uh, pedestrian zones and um, and how pedestrians could potentially take over Toronto. Um, I went to a talk um, a couple months ago by a group called Why Should I Care? Um, and they do a bunch of really cool talks um, about democracy and democratic issues uh, within the city. So if you are interested in that stuff, they their talks are always awesome, always shows all sides of any argument. And one of the talks that I went to was on pedestrian zones in Toronto. Um, and the city has tried to install certain pedestrian zones um, that haven't worked. And I'm curious to know... Um, or to ask about how how that might change in this world of Pokemon Go um, and whether those pedestrian zones that they, that they had previously tried to implement might be more successful now. Um, so potentially, if people stop uh, crossing the street on highways and other dangerous areas, um, this could this could increase the kind of consumer market for pedestrian zones and make Toronto more walkable and more accessible for cyclists and pedestrians and make it less of a car-dominated city, which yeah. is cool. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's an opportunity if we make it one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I could easily talk more about video games. Always a pleasure to chat with you in general. But be safe but be safe. when you're playing. Look both ways before you cross the street. Look both ways before you take every third step has been my experience. I, I, I've been walking around. I've been going out and doing a couple of kilometers every night uh, as well. And, uh, and my strategy is to, you know, two seconds at the phone, three seconds on the street. Nice. Even if I'm in the middle of a block, just because, I mean, I've, I've had some near close calls with lampposts already. So, yeah, uh, yeah look up. And, and down. Don't fall off cliffs. Look up and down. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much Trees. for joining me, Deirdre. Thanks. Once again, Thanks, take care, everybody. Thanks for listening.